The rest of you, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Continue our study in 1 Corinthians. We've been out of it for a few weeks. So thankful to have faithful elders who are able to, to fill the pulpit, who are able to preach not just serviceable sermons, but great sermons. Oh my goodness. Sermons that are like 35 and 25 and 28 minutes long. And here I am, making me look bad. So thankful for those bros. I recently heard a man say, self-identity impacts personal conduct. In other words, who we think we are impacts how we behave. And how we behave, well, that demonstrates who we think we are. That's why we tell our children, for example, we don't act that way in this family. Our family has an identity, a certain way that we act and how we act reflects that identity. That identity, it comes with a certain set of values and of expectations. And those values and those expectations, well, they impact the way that our family acts. Is it ever possible to forget who we are? Some of you may recall in Disney's animated film, The Lion King, Simba was the son of the king, and his, his dad taught him that his princely identity demanded a certain kind of behavior. But after his, his father, Mufasa, died, Simba ran away, lied about his identity. He lived a life contrary to his kingly identity, akuna matata. Nothing matters except a whole lot of stuff matters. You may recall the turning point of the film, Rafiki the baboon chided Simba you don't even know who you are, or something like that. You don't even know who you are anymore. Well, in our passage this afternoon, the Apostle Paul chides the Corinthians in a similar way. The church was rife with personal disputes. Certain members were airing out the church's dirty laundry in public courts. The saints were suing other saints, and it was bringing disrepute to the gospel. The church was scandalized. And so Paul rebukes them. Do you not know who you are? Don't you know? Is what he's going to say. We're going to see that phrase three times in our passage. So with all that in mind, I would encourage you, if you're able, to stand one more time for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Oh, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another, it's already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves, you wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. You may recall from a few weeks ago in chapter 5, their refusal to exercise discipline within the church showed that they had a wrong view of themselves. In the first half of chapter 6, we see something similar. Their litigious behavior shows that they also continue to have a wrong view of themselves. And next week, when we look at the second half of the chapter, we're going to see sexual immorality and the same error stands true. Don't they realize who they are? That's the thrust of the key verse there in verse 11. Verse 11 forms a hinge between the first half of chapter 6 and the second half of chapter 6. And as such were some of you. Notice it's in the past tense. Such were some of you. This is what you used to be. You're different now. The gospel's changed you. You have an altogether different identity now. And that changes everything. And so the pressing issue has to do ultimately with dispute resolution. That's what this is all about. What do we do if we have grievances against other Christians? What about when we think we've been wronged or defrauded by another church member? How should we respond? Paul says in verse 11, remember who you are. Remember where you came from. Remember what you've received. And that ultimately gets us to the big idea of the passage. And so my aim this afternoon over the course of the next few minutes is to persuade you of this one idea that in God's kingdom, the gospel gives us all we need to judge and settle our disputes. That in God's kingdom, the gospel gives us all that we need to judge and to settle our disputes. Here's how the big idea plays out in the passage. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, the gospel makes us competent to judge disputes. And then we're going to see in verses 3 through 8 that the gospel makes us wise to settle disputes. Then finally, in verses 9 through 11, it provides the basis for everything that came before it. The gospel gives us a kingdom to inherit. And so the gospel makes us competent to judge and wise to settle because it gives us a kingdom to inherit. Consider with me verses 1 and 2. First of all, the gospel makes us competent to judge. We previously saw, you may remember, in chapter 1 that this church was a divided church. Well, verse 1 is going to take it a step further. Church members are going, taking, or taking fellow Christians to non-Christian courts to settle their disputes instead of doing so among fellow Christians. And Paul says to them right here, how dare you? But now Paul's rebuke, I think, at this moment deserves a little bit of qualification. First of all, Paul isn't down on civil authority, and we need to get that straight. 
He's not down on the law of the land. He's not saying that non-Christian lawyers are useless. There may be some Christians that feel that way, but that's not what the Bible teaches. In Acts chapter 16, you may remember that Paul appealed for his legal right to protection. Later on in Acts chapter 25, he took his appeal all the way to the emperor. So Paul obviously doesn't think that the church should set up its own legal system, a kind of Christian version of Sharia law. To the contrary, he orders Timothy to pray for civil rulers. In Romans 13, we're told that those rulers are put in place by God himself to serve his purposes in the world. You may remember how Jesus commanded us to render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and even recognize the authority of Pilate and Herod, even though both of them were corrupt, pagan rulers. So both Paul and Jesus recognize God's purposes in giving the church and the civil government separate spheres of authority in the world. And so whatever it is that Paul means in verse 1, he can't mean that criminal matters should be kept quiet and covered up in the church. He's not telling them to protect the church's reputation by quietly handling legal issues in-house. God has authorized churches to wield the keys of the kingdom to make judgments on true and false gospels and true and false churches and true and false Christians, but he has not authorized churches to wield the sword of the state to judge between good and evil and civil and criminal matters. Full stop. And so let me be clear. Paul, when giving this admonition, does not have criminal matters in mind. The grievances that he mentions in verse 1, or according to verse 5, aren't legal matters, but they're disputable matters. They're trivial. The offenses aren't against the law of the land, but the, tr- the offenses are against the law of Christ. And so when it comes to these matters then, the gospel makes us competent to judge. The Corinthians had forgotten who they were. And Paul's exasperation comes through now in verse 2. He says, don't you know? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world's to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Have you forgotten who you are in Christ? Do you not know or remember what kind of privileges and responsibilities you're going to have one day in this consummated kingdom? No, what he's saying is, if the gospel gives you all that you need to one day judge the whole world, then why are you going to the world for judgments? So Paul is not saying, or Paul's not saying that they all need to go into the legal profession. You all need to become lawyers. That's not what he's saying. But he is reminding them, and he's reminding us, of the eternal responsibility that we are going to have at the end of the age when Christ returns. Just follow along with me. Daniel chapter 7 teaches that this judgment is going to be given to God's saints set apart for this purpose. In Matthew 19, Jesus says the apostles are going to sit on thrones and judge Israel. Revelation 2, the church, those who overcome the world, are going to be given authority to judge the world with Christ. Now, exactly what this judgment looks like, the nature of the judgment, how it's going to happen, well, the Bible's not really clear on that. But verse 2, you notice here, suggests that somehow it's going to involve judging angels. What does that mean? Well, we see, for instance, in Galatians chapter 1, that Paul says that if anybody comes preaching a gospel different than us, including what? An angel. 
then you are to remove them and cast them out for judgment. Is that what Paul's talking about? Well, that's certainly true, but Paul has in mind here a future tense judgment, not a present tense responsibility, so he must mean something else. I take him to mean, though there's been many suggestions, I think the best explanation is it's those fallen apostate angels who fell with and serve alongside Satan, who will be judged at the end of the age. And we will participate that in the final defeat of sin, Satan, and death once and for all. There will be no more enemies to God and the gospel in that day. And he will crush our enemies under the feet of Christ. Even so, the overall point that we find here is straightforward enough. Paul's reminding them again of who they are. He says, you have been adopted into God's family by no less than King Jesus. You have been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in his name. You're the rightful heirs of his kingdom. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are the Lord's treasured possession. Isaiah 2, he's going to one day set us up in praise and fame and honor high above all the nations that he's created. In Genesis 1, Adam, the first man, had dominion over the earth. But in the new creation, Christ's new humanity, the church is going to have dominion over the heavens and the earth, over all of the cosmos. You, he says, are that new humanity. Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten how supernatural and incredible and amazing this community is and what you've been called to be? And what you've been given. You may be seen as foolish in the world for now. But you have been set apart for future greatness. Do you not know this? He says your worldly disputes demonstrate that you don't know who you are. Well, here Paul's arguing in verses 1 and 2 that the gospel makes us competent to judge our disputes. If you're going to judge the world, you can judge trivial disputes. And if that's the case, then it must also be true in verses 3 through 8 that the gospel makes us wise to settle our disputes. Makes us wise to settle our disputes. We're going to see a couple of things here. In these verses, what we find is what one person called the most biting sarcasm in the whole letter. And there's a whole lot of sarcasm in the letter. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. He's saying the gospel is the wisdom of God. You remember that from chapter 1? The gospel is the very wisdom of God. How can it be among all you gospel people that no one is wise enough to settle disputes? If the gospel is the wisdom of God. Is there no one among you who can settle disputes among brothers? Ouch. Biting sarcasm. Well, in light of the gospel, Paul wants us to consider no less than two things in these verses. Verses 3 through 8 about settling disputes. You might consider these subpoints if you're following along in the back of your bulletin. He wants us to consider, first of all, how winning, in the world's sense, is really losing. And then in verses 7 and 8, how losing, in a gospel sense, is really winning. How is winning really losing, and how is losing really winning? He's going to introduce the paradox of gospel life. Let's consider that first one. When is winning losing? Verses 3 through 6. Just by way of reminder, read through it with me again. Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? 
So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? A brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? Once again, Paul isn't questioning the ability of civil courts to settle legal disputes. What he's saying to the church is, why are you parading your personal failures into the public eye? Why are you airing out all of your personal grievances like Festivus in front of non-Christians? There is no Festivus for the rest of us, if you know what I'm saying. Paul has in mind the church's reputation. Now, I want you to pause for just a minute. Because we need to be really careful here. When we're talking about being concerned about our church's reputation in the world, we need to be very, very careful. Because misunderstanding and misapplying these verses have produced a whole lot of harm to Christians and churches. We considered a moment ago how Paul and Jesus both uphold the law of the land and recognize it's God-given authority to, to judge civil and criminal matters and We recognize the same. So I alluded to it earlier. When a church attempts to guard its reputation by quietly handling criminal issues in-house, by treating civil and criminal matters merely as personal disputes, physical abuse, sexual abuse, theft, biblically warranted divorces in which legal rights of parents and children are defined and upheld, When these kinds of matters are hushed up and they're handled in-house, beloved, the church's reputation is not protected. It is scandalized. You've seen this in headline after headline in recent years. Many of you may recall immediately the, the Houston Chronicle article that came out a few years ago about the 400 Southern Baptist churches that had covered up abuse. And in many of them was a well-intentioned misapplication of 1 Corinthians 6. Now, beloved, the only situation in which a church might not report criminal conduct, conduct that's in breach of the law of the land is when the law of the land is in defiance of God's word. When the law of the land is asking us to disbelieve or to disobey our consciences bound to Scripture, in which case we are not bound to report and we are not bound to obey. And so it would be for any Christians anywhere when it comes to these gospel matters. And so if the state criminalizes Christian conduct and teaching, the state transgresses its God-given jurisdiction, and you can expect that I and every elder in this church will act in defiance of the law of the land. We will preach the gospel. Should the state at any time criminalize preaching the Christian gospel, then I, for one, will declare myself a criminal. And at that point, Christians and churches are going to operate outside of the law, and they have to for obedience to Christ, because God alone is Lord of the conscience. So, for example, should the state criminalize Christian teaching on gender and sexuality? Or criminalize preaching repentance under the guise of ambiguous anti-conversion therapy laws. Then we're going to keep on preaching the gospel with the aim to convert sinners to Christ. We're going to counsel and love and encourage, but we will not waver on his word. But all of that is not what Paul's talking about here. 
This is one of those passages, I think, where it's important not just to define what Paul is talking about, but it's also important to define what he's not talking about because it's so often misunderstood and misapplied. But what is Paul talking about? What is he talking about here? He's saying the gospel is the wisdom of God. You, church, are a gospel people. See that in verse 11. This means that you have all the wisdom that you need to settle trivial disputes among yourselves. But that's not what they were doing. They were parading their trivial disputes all over the social media feed of the public courts for everyone to see. Oh, that's what Christians are like? That's what their so-called gospel produces? No thanks. Christ is defamed. The gospel is brought into disrepute. Paul says here, shame on you. All you've done is parade into the public square your worldly failure. So he says, verse 7, win or lose, you've already suffered defeat. By going to their courts, you took a big L for the gospel and for the church. But in God's kingdom, things are often upside down and backwards compared to the world. And so when it comes to settling disputes then in light of the gospel, what we find in verses 7 and 8 is that losing can be winning. Follow along with me. How is losing then winning? Take note of a few things. First, I want you to take note of the fact that there are ongoing squabbles like this, that it's evidence of profound worldliness and failure that their church should be characterized in this way. The fact that, that fellow Christians in the church can't work them out is further evidence of this failure. But I want you to notice, secondly, in verses 7 and 8, that they suggest that these disputes are primarily revolving around suffering wrong and suffering loss, about damaged personal reputations and defrauding personal property. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, there are a few things more precious to our hearts in this world than those two things. My stuff and my rep. Don't mess with them. Regarding your reputation, Paul says, why not just suffer loss? If you're worried about recouping your personal property, why not just be defrauded? But he says, you're not willing to win by losing. No, when you're wronged and defrauded by someone, you wrong and defraud them in return. Rather than overcome evil with good, you overcome evil with evil through retaliatory purposes. And so no wonder you're dragging fellow Christians into godless courts, he says. That's how the world works. But don't you know? Don't you know that the gospel calls you to something altogether different? You have a new name in Christ. A new name. Are you prepared to be slighted? He says you've been justified in Christ such that nothing and no one can bring a charge against God's elect, including you. Are you going to refrain from legal recourse? You who have a great inheritance waiting for you in heaven, why not just be defrauded for a little bit in this life for the gospel's sake? Now, I realize that some of this may catch some of you by surprise. You're thinking maybe in your minds, surely that can't be what Paul's talking about. But I want to suggest that that may be proof that your heart and my heart needs more change than has currently occurred. Commenting on verses 7 and 8, the sometimes helpful Gordon Fee says, there is need of deep reformation and a genuine overhaul of our value system in these verses. 
Because most legal acts are predicated on rights and pursuit of property. A litigious spirit in a Christian may be proof that he loves the things of the gospel too little and the things of the world too much. He would rather preserve himself and his stuff than suffer injury for the gospel's sake and for the sake of the church. John Calvin gets us to the point. He says, what Paul then condemns in the Corinthians is this, that they harassed one another with lawsuits. And then he states the reason of it, that they were not prepared to bear injuries patiently. And assuredly, as the Lord commands us not to be overcome by evils, but on the contrary, to overcome injuries by acts of kindness, it is certain that those who cannot control themselves so as to suffer injuries patiently commit sin by their impatience. I need my rights upheld now. Anything less than that is injustice. Beloved, we're still so tied to this world, aren't we? So concerned with our personal rights, intent on defending our reputations at all costs. Our flesh can't compute how losing could possibly be winning. That makes no sense. And apart from the gospel, it doesn't. Apart from verse 11, it doesn't. But the gospel, Paul says, changes everything. That it not only makes us competent to judge our disputes, but it makes us wise in settling them. So how can we do this? Obviously, we should make every effort not to harm or defraud others. We should guard our tongues and, and do our very best to pay back any debts that we owe. We should reconsider perhaps what Ryan preached on two weeks ago as we might consider loaning money to other brothers and sisters in the church. You shouldn't loan anything that you're not willing to lose. That's a good principle, straight from God's word. But what if we're the one who's been defrauded? What if we are the ones that have been harmed? Beloved, I want you to consider a few ways the gospel compels us to turn our losing into winning. First, determine to overcome evil with good. Determine to overcome evil with good. It's Romans 12. There are few things that renew and motivate repentance in true Christians than seeing their sin against others met with mercy by the one that they've grieved. I know you know that from your marriages, and I know you know that from your workplaces and your friendships. When you know you've wronged somebody else and it is met with mercy, it makes the sting of sin even sharper and makes you run to Christ in repentance more quickly. That's what kindness does. It's why Paul says in Romans 12, it's like lumping hot coals on someone's head. No, leave vengeance to the Lord. It always looks good on God. It looks awful on you. And overcome evil with good. Be merciful. Second, Forgive as you have been forgiven. Some of you remember that parable Jono preached on it just a few years ago. Matthew chapter 18, the apostle Peter, old big mouth Peter, comes forward to Jesus and he goes, hey, listen, if my brother sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven times? Now, the rule of the rabbis of the day were three times. If they sin against you once, well, forgive them. If they do it a second and third time, forgive them a couple more times. But after that, you're not obligated to forgive them anymore. 
And so Peter thinks he's doing pretty well. How many times should I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, you need to forgive him seven times, 70 or 77 times. He's pulling the same language that we find in Genesis chapter 4 where Lamech goes, Saul's, uh, where he says uh, Lamech's vengeance is 77-fold. It's limitless. And Jesus is turning that on its head. He's going, no, 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 we're not talking about vengeance. We're talking about forgiveness. Your forgiveness is to be limitless. It's to know no bounds. <gasps> and then he looks at Peter and goes, let me tell you a story. And you always know you're in big trouble whenever Jesus turns to you and says, I want to tell you a story. He goes, there was a servant who was called by his king to repay his debts. And in modern terms, the servant owed about $2 trillion in the parable in modern money. More than he could earn in a lifetime, more than he could earn in hundreds of lifetimes. And the king takes the hit on himself, forgives the servant. The servant goes away free. And then on his way home, he, run, he runs into a, into a guy in town that owes him the equivalent of $20,000. $2 trillion, $20,000. You remember what he did? He got angry. He strangled him. And he said, you repay me my money. And the king said, you wicked servant. I forgave you your debt. Are you not also to forgive? And he threw him into prison. Paul writes in Colossians 3, Forgive one another just as you have been forgiven. How have you been forgiven? He says so in the previous chapter, Colossians 2, that he took our, that he removed all of our debts, nailing them to the cross. What debt remains that Jesus is ever going to come back and say and hold us in reproach? And there is none. So it should be with us. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Thirdly, and this is the hardest one to do. If you thought the previous one was hard, this one's harder. God will repay what you lose for the gospel's sake. God will repay what you lose for the gospel's sake. Jesus promises in Matthew 19 that whatever we lose for the gospel's sake will be repaid a hundredfold in his kingdom. You don't have to worry about that. I got you covered. And then he says at the end of that pericope, he says, many who are first will be last, but the last will be first. Jesus says, let me tell you a little something about how losing for the gospel's sake is winning. Paul says, ought you not just to be defrauded? <laughs> Christ will repay. Do you believe that? I want to say on my best days, I struggle to believe that. And we need verse 11 to be true if we're going to believe that. And praise God that it is. This is how the gospel turns losing into winning. When you and I forget who we are and what we've been promised in the gospel, our defenses drop and the world overtakes us. Worldliness rushes in just like we see here. So practically speaking then, what might it look like for us to operate according to Paul's instructions in a godly way? What does it look like not to rush into civil courts? What does it look like to handle trivial matters in the context of our own congregation? Well, first of all, it means that you and another member, if you are embroiled in unresolved dispute, 
that you need to seek private mediation before public litigation. Seek private mediation before you seek public litigation. Do all that you can do to assume the best and to guard one another's reputations. And as you do, secondly, invite wise, godly, and experienced Christians from our church to mediate that dispute if necessary. You might begin by reaching out to one of our elders so that we can provide care for you guys in that process and, and even to help you think through who would be most helpful to invite in based on their practical wisdom and their godliness. Third, it means that we need wise policies and flexible procedures as a church for assisting our members in settling disputes in godly ways. We can't do it by fiat or we're going to be too controlled by reactionary responses and by our own flesh. We need to be thinking in advance according to the principles of God's word on how to engage the inevitable disputes that arise in churches like our church between now and the resurrection. How do we do that? Churches need to be conscious about being thoughtful in these ways. Finally, when godly saints that you've invited in help to mediate a just settlement between you and another member, even if it means to some degree you're going to win by losing, humbly submit to their settlement. Because if you think that you alone are wise and you disregard God's word, like the prescriptions that we see here in chapter 6, for example, and you go on insisting on your rights and your property because you don't like all the terms of an otherwise just settlement, then, beloved, that is profoundly worldly. And that's what Paul's rebuking the church for. That's not who we are. We don't scramble around and fight for scraps in this life because the gospel promises us so much more in Christ's consummated kingdom. And that's what we see in our last two verses, verses 9 and 11, that the gospel gives us a kingdom to inherit. Do you not know, it's the third time he said it, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The issue here is not merely the exalted status of the church given by God that we see there in verse 11. It is our exalted status as distinct from the world that we see in verse 10. By suing each other in secular courts, they were erasing the distinction. The godlessness of the disputes in verses 7 and 8 and the godless behavior of taking other Christians to court in verses 3 to 6 denies the radical transformation described in verse 11. So Paul's saying, why are you going back to the world? Why are you going back to what you once were? Why are you going back to those with whom you once associated? Remember who you are. Such were some of you. That's not who you are anymore. So why do you continue to go back to it like you, were, like you are? Remember that the gospel, he says, gives us all that we need to judge and to settle these kinds of disputes in a godly way. 
He says, you're going to the courts and the courts are filled with all those kinds of people that we see in 9 and 10. And you're looking for them who think the gospel is foolishness to judge wisely when you're a gospel people. You have the very wisdom of God. Can you not judge better over the disputes in your own church than what we see in these civil courts? You've been given everything you need, he says. Well, friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're here investigating Christian things, I want you to be impressed, first of all, by the kind of life, not that the Corinthians are living, and maybe not even the lives that we live all the time, but the life that the gospel calls us to live and strengthens and empowers us to live, that is, those who have trusted in Christ. But even more than that, I want you to hear good news in six words. And such were some of you. The challenge of the list of sins in verse 10 is that though you may be able to deny some or maybe even most of them in your life, you cannot deny all of them. Like each person here, you are a sinner. That you have rebelled against God's good and holy law and of his purposes for your life. And because of your sin, you stand condemned before him and you will not receive his kingdom when he comes. But friend, listen to me. My sermon doesn't end there and verse 10 is not the last word. The God who created you and sustains you to this very day he holds out to you the threefold gift of verse 11, just as he does to all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Number one, if you turn to Christ, you will be cleansed. All of your sins are going to be washed away by the blood of Christ, just like we sung earlier. Number two, you will be sanctified. You are going to be set apart by God for special use, just as he created you to be used for. No greater purpose in the world than that. Number three, you will be justified. Christ will take your sins upon himself and give you his perfect righteousness. So that when you stand before God, he will not see your sexual immorality and he will not see your idolatry and he will not see your adultery and he will not see your homosexuality and he won't see all the things that you've stolen or your greed or all the times that you've been drunk or reviled or swindled to others. No, he will see you in that day robed in the spotless righteousness of Christ. He will make you a new person inside and out. And he will give you a new future with an indestructible hope of inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The only way to get from your present reality, my friend, in verse 10 to the promises of verse 11 is Jesus. And such we're some of you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.